Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, today is the third full day of practice for some people, and the 10th or 11th. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I taught math, fifth and sixth grade, yeah. <laughs> I kind of lose track of the days. Uh, but for some people, the, the third day is kind of like you're starting to come in for, for a landing. So hopefully uh, you're arriving. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the present moment. Um, and if you're not, I give myself three days to go through whatever I do, busy mind, wandering, achy body, restlessness, and sleepiness. And if it's still that way, I'll give myself another couple of days. The, the main thing is to just give yourself the space to go through what you're going through. But giving a talk on the third day um, is a little bit easier. The jokes might go a little bit go down a little bit easier. <laughs> and for the other people who've been here for a while, well... <clears throat> You're, you're used to me by now. So, <clears throat> so the last time uh, I talked, um, I talked about different kinds of wholesome states and gladness of various wholesome states. And there's one that I want to particularly focus on tonight that I think is really key to the practice. Uh, and that is um, the quality and the power and the joy that comes from letting go. It's such an essential principle of practice. In the Buddha's teaching, the word uh, nakama is used to, uh, to signify letting go, and it's usually translated as renunciation. I mentioned this, I think, the, maybe the last time I forget, because I, I went through this very quickly uh, in my last talk. But when you hear the word renunciation, it's, it's not, oh, groovy, now we get to renounce. Uh, it sounds like a sacrifice. It sounds like deprivation. It sounds like, you know, not a whole lot of fun. But... The Buddha talked about this as really one of the, the great um, ways to access happiness. In fact, in one discourse, uh, he said, before he was enlightened, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, it said, um, he looked at his mind and he saw different kinds of thoughts. And sometimes he'd sit and he'd have... Uh, thoughts of sense, desire, ill will, and cruelty, right? So this is just before he was enlightened. So cut yourself a little slack if you see those <laughs> thoughts every now and then. He said, and he saw when he had those kinds of thoughts, they didn't feel good. And then at other times, he had other kinds of thoughts, <clears throat> namely um, non thoughts of non-desire or uh, non-grasping, 
thoughts of non-ill will or kindness, non-grasping, another way to say uh, non-grasping is, no, non-desire, yeah. non-lust and just okay with the moment, and non, uh, what he called thoughts of renunciation. And he said when he had these thoughts of not grasping and uh, non-ill will, uh, non, non-cruelty, I should say, uh, which is compassion, and thoughts of renunciation. He said, when I had these kinds of thoughts, it made me feel really happy. And so I cultivated those kinds of thoughts. Renunciation or nakama, or letting go, it's not a sacrifice. It's not a deprivation. It's really giving up what complicates and confuses our minds. It's putting down the burden of the extra baggage that we somehow carry with us and don't know how to release or don't even realize that that's a possibility. But it's a great relief when we can discern between what we need and what we think we need, what we want but that we don't really need. And when we put down that extra stuff, including the stuff that keeps us looking outside of ourselves for happiness, there's a great lightening of the load. This is just the opposite of all the messages that we've been told. And I, I mentioned the last time the, uh, the ad, the gold shivers, and all the ways that we're seduced into thinking that happiness is, is out there. I forget if I mentioned, uh, I don't think I did, uh, somebody asked John D. Rockefeller how much money would be enough. And his reply was, just a little more. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? To be one of the richest human beings on the planet and just a little more is where he thought happiness would lie. And most of us believe that just a little bit more will do it for us. And in fact, this is what motivated the Buddha to teach when after he was enlightened, he looked around with his powers and he saw everybody wanting to be happy and going about doing the things that were exactly causing more suffering to themselves. And here we are, 2,500, 2,600 years later, still in that trap, unless we see clearly. Most people don't realize there's a choice, but we're so blessed and fortunate to see, oh, that's not where really ha- happiness really lies. Sylvia, I wasn't here last night, but I heard it was a really great talk on, on Satipatthana Sutta, and and uh, heard, and she mentioned it a little bit this morning, um, about anicca, about impermanence, about that that is the underlying reality. And this letting go, the joy of putting down the, the baggage, the joy of, of hold, not holding on to what we think we need, but that we don't really need, is very much tied 
to this reality of, of impermanence, of anicca. Because in a world of change, holding on to that which is changing is a sure prescription for dukkha, for suffering. As one teacher puts it, it's rope burn. <laughs> I love that image. It's, you can see so clearly. There you are holding on to what's moving through so fast and getting burned in the process. To say, God, if I could only hold on a little tighter, then I'd be okay. Not realizing there's no way you can hold on to changing experience. So I want to take a look at, one, why it's so hard, um, how we can transform our relationship to the seduction of where we think happiness lies and how it affects us, how we can practice letting go, and the result that comes when we more and more learn to do that. And to explore first why it's so hard or where the problem lies, I want to spend a little time on the second noble truth. I don't know how much did you speak about that last night much? So might be, you'll hear my version if, it, if she went into it. But the second noble truth, which as probably you're familiar with, the cause of suffering is attachment, is wanting And also, the third noble truth, if the cause of suffering is holding on, the end of suffering is letting go. So the Buddha talked about four different areas that we get caught in grasping, in holding on. One is sense experience. The next, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And there's fabulous things out there to experience, you know, sunsets, um, chocolate, uh, music, um, art, you know, sensual experiences. There's just one problem with them, and that is they don't last. It's not a problem that they're there and... I love music, and I love sunsets, and I like chocolate, too. But if you think your happiness lies in the next hit, you're setting yourself up for trouble, and that's where most of us get confused. Think of the, the most fantastic meal, your favorite meal, gourmet meal at your favorite restaurant or that you might like to prepare if, you, if you're a cook or you're fortunate enough to live with somebody who's good at cooking, you got to think of your favorite meal and think of the last time you ate it. Where is it now? <laughs> gone. It's gone. Think of the most really delicious sensual experience, a great massage or whatever. <laughs> Where is it now? It's gone. 
And it's wonderful to be present for that. But if you think that it's about the next thing, the next object, the next massage, the next experience, the next whatever, then you're pulled out into the future. And you can't really be here for what's here right now. Now, all of a sudden, starts to lose its, its interest and its compelling uh, quality. It's not enough if you're thinking about what could be or the next thing that happens. And here's a little... I like to do some uh, experiential stuff to, uh, for the body to get this. Um, I did this with a couple of people on the retreat. Just to see both the, the dukkha and the possibility of the end of dukkha. Think of something that you've been looking forward to. Okay. Maybe like the bell ringing at the end of a meditation or, or something, or the next really great sitting, or when you leave the retreat, something that you're looking forward to, or just the end of the retreat, or whatever it is. You know. Think of something that you're really looking forward to or wanting to happen. Okay? Got something in your mind? Anybody not yet? Okay. That was, that's an easy thing to do. Oh, yeah, that, that, that. Now, just imagine it's right out in front of you, a little bit out of your reach. But if you can reach and touch it, instant gratification. Got it? So now indulge me in this, if you will. I'd like you to keep your butt on the cushion or the chair and reach forward for it. Come on. That's what you do in your mind anyway. Just go for it. Come on. It's almost there. And then you realize you're not going to get it. And now slowly come back and let your body feel what it's like to come back to center. You feel the difference? This, as enticing as it might be, is painful. It might be titillating and compelling, but it's painful to be that off-center. This, coming back to this moment, ah, here's rest, here's peace. We can hold on or look forward to the next experience, or we can hold on to experience that has happened, you know, and try to recreate it. Have you ever come into the hall after a good sitting? Say, I think I got this down now. You know? <laughs> on my first retreat, I was so fortunate um, that I got this lesson in a powerful way. I had this really, I'd never had a meditation before where. I just sat down and somehow I got into this space where I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out. I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in. And we were both in complete sync with each other. And I just, it was so peaceful. And the bell rang and I didn't want to go anywhere. It was just, wow, how cool. I thought, far out. I think I, think I like retreats. <laughs> The next time I sat, I remembered really well. Groovy. Didn't happen. The next time, it didn't happen. And for the next two days, I 
did everything I could to figure out how to get it and what I did to lose it. And I went into the interview with Joseph and I said, you know, I really had it a few days ago and somehow I lost it. You know? And he told me a story that he has written about, um, but this is, you know, I'd never heard it. This is 1974. And he said, um, I'll share with you something from my own practice. And he said at some point when he was practicing in, in Bodh Gaya, every time he sat, his body was like light and his mind was so clear. And this went on for a couple of months like that. It was just sometimes you get into these phases. He'd been practicing for a number of years. And then he went back to the States and just kind of, he was going to go back to India. He was going back to the States for a few months and then going back. And he kind of, you know, he didn't practice a whole lot and and just kind of hung out and had an okay time. And then he went back remembering really well what it was like. And he went down and he sat waiting for the vibrations and the tingling and the golden light and all that. And it wasn't there. And then he was frustrated and then he tried and he tried some more he sat down and his body was like twisted steel he said and his mind was like mud and then he looked at me and he said I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience and then he leaned forward and he said I was the dummy I did it for you you don't have to be the dummy. <laughs> Thank you very much. And it was just about, he said, you just be with experience the way it is because any kind of trying to recreate or hold on, you are setting yourself up for that. You don't have to spend two years in that. So we get caught in different experiences. Oh, yeah, groovy. That's one Attachment. The Buddha talked about four attachments in the second truth. Second one is attachment to ideas and opinions. Our version of the truth. We know we are in touch with the truth. And it's, it's like amazing to think how somebody else doesn't see the truth when it's as plain as day to us. How can somebody have a different idea? They are so out there. And so is the rest of the world. You know, We get so attached to our view and opinion of life and of reality, not realizing that everybody is walking around in their own world, their own reality, thinking they know the truth. It all makes sense to each of us in our warped way. No matter where we go, what our reality is makes sense to us. And we can have good ideas and views, we think, about practice too. Oh, it's supposed to look like this. Oh, if I sit down and I don't have any emotions and I'm just there with the breath, then I'm really doing it. Somebody else might hear somebody sobbing and thinking, God, I'm just sitting here and I'm with the breath, but nothing else is coming up. And I'm I'm not really getting anywhere. I'm just kind of 
in, out, big deal. Where's the feelings? Where's the juice? I, you know, just blocked. If I could just feel my emotional life, then I'd be doing it. You could go around and find 85 different opinions about what good practice is like. They're just opinions. They're just views. And the key is to see how that is so and not be seduced by them, to let go of them. This is from the Buddha. He says, An accomplished person does not by, does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) And a whole lot of people annoy us. And we annoy ourselves with all our views and opinions about how things should be. Now, he doesn't say not to have any opinions. He just says, don't get attached to your opinions. There will be views that we have about everything. We discern and we have to use our judgment in a discriminating way but just to see this is our reality. And if we get too attached and fixed, this is the truth, we might be setting ourselves up for a problem. He said, don't get attached to views or opinions. Take a look for yourself and see what's true. My, my teacher, Punjaji, used to say, you know, as far as ideas and concepts, he'd say, No place to land. There's no place to land. If there's no place to land, no problem. No place in your mind to say, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. We can have all kinds of ideas, all kinds of expectations of what we think is going to be happening or should happen, and then we get caught. And in our daily life, also expectations or plans, oh, I'll just kind of, you know, this is the plan, and let's go for it. And I'm all for having goals and plans. I write down goals from time to time and have vision of what I want to create. But if we get stuck in our one plan so that life is either passing or failing our test, we're going to be in a lot of problems in that I mentioned it uh, people who aren't here I mentioned this book that I use for the joy course that I do how we choose to be happy and one of the choices the nine choices of these people um, of extremely happy happy people is uh, what he what they call options that there's a flexibility with life and if you don't have a flexibility watch out And here's one I thought I'd read to you so you can just see if you get too attached to your plans, working out or not working out. Um, Daryl is an engineer. For 25 years, he's worked successfully for a municipal government in Florida. In spite of his success, he describes himself as not particularly happy. He was not one of the 300 people. 
When he was in his early 20s, Daryl mapped out a detailed professional plan that he followed without compromise. Now at 50, he's mapped out the rest of his career as well. Daryl is sure this plan will eventually make him happy. This is him talking. Security has always been my goal, so I've got my entire life planned out. I knew that staying in one profession would get me the benefits I need for retirement. I won't make it to the next level for five more years. Then when I'm 55, I'll be ready to move to another company in a senior management position. By that time, I'll be too old to go much higher. So at 60, I plan to get a job teaching engineering and public policy. I'll have enough money to retire at 65 and do what I really want to do. What does Daryl really want to do? He doesn't know. If he follows his plan to retirement, he's got 15 long years in a job that gives him security but isn't what he wants to do. Daryl is sure that this plan is, as he calls it, the only way it can be, and he easily offers 10 reasons why no other approach will work. Why is he so unhappy? Because he's locked into his own plan, unwilling to consider any other possibilities. And what's his favorite gripe? This is him talking. It seems like nothing ever works out for me. Some people are just lucky and others aren't. I'm so tired of being disappointed by life. He did it for us. You don't have to do it. (laughs) So we get attached to sense experience, to ideas and opinions. We get attached to spiritual forms, what's often known as rites and rituals. But having... Uh, or as one, as Trungpa Rinpoche called it, spiritual materialism. Just the right meditation, the right mala beads, the, the right church, the right tradition, the right lineage. My religion is better than their religion. My God is better than your God. And you can see what a mess this world is in because of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just have to talk louder than you. (laughs) Our views of God The word God, I understand it, is that which cannot be named, that which is ineffable, which is beyond description. But we have such many people in the world, such fixed ideas of that which is beyond description, whether you call it God or the Dharma or the mystery or whatever, as um, one of my f- a favorite quote about God from uh, this Indian uh, sage, Ram Tirtha, he said, God defined is God confined. How can we, it's these human, human minds trying to grasp an understanding of the incomprehensible. It's impossible. And the Buddha talked about all the different approaches to deep understanding and to awakening as fingers pointing to the moon. 
It's like somebody comes out and is pointing to the full moon, which is the symbol for enlightenment on a full moon night. If somebody else comes out and looks at the finger and just says, oh, that's a very nice finger, they're missing what it's pointing to. The pointer is for you to experience it yourself. And that's the same which he said, with any practices, you see for yourself, you use the practices as a skillful means, whether it's Vipassana or Vajrayana or Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or, uh, or Islam or Hinduism. They're all packages to point to that which cannot be named. But we get into a lot of problems when we get attached to our form. Joseph Goldstein's book, One Dharma, is a beautiful exposition about his own wrestling with trying to sort out different Buddhist concepts from the Theravadan tradition and the uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition. You know, what is enlightenment anyway? Is there a cessation of consciousness where everything just disappears as uh, as it's said in some Theravadan um, presentations of, of ultimate reality, is there just pure awareness that knows, that simply knows, that's empty and wakeful and cognizant? And many other different approaches, and he went around and around trying to figure out what's the truth. And then finally, he came up with his great, one of what he calls one of his great contributions to Western Dharma, the two pithy words, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But they're all skillful means to point us to that reality for ourselves. So notice if you're attached to your meditation, your particular ritual, for getting to the truth, or to Vipassana, or to Buddhism. They're all just forms. So that's a third area of attachment. And then the fourth area of attachment, which I'll just touch on briefly because Shard is going to be talking about it more tomorrow, is attachment to the idea of a separate self. One image that I have, it's like a wave that's desperately trying to show that it belongs in the ocean. Look at me. Am I okay? Am I doing okay? Not seeing you're part of the ocean. As, as somebody, uh, Jennifer Wellwood says, when, you're, when you know that you're the ocean, the waves don't scare you. But we get caught in trying to show that we're okay and needing validation and having acceptance from that world out there and not even realizing that this is life just expressing itself through this form called James or Sally or Sylvia or you. And it's just playing in this form. From the inside, it feels that we're Separate sometimes. Most people get into that optical delusion of consciousness. But from another vantage point, it's simply just 
the play of consciousness and the physical plane, what I sometimes call the master recycling plan, just kind of playing itself out. And this is where we get really caught in our contraction, because then we've got something to protect and something to aggrandize and something to prove that we're okay. So this is the fourth attachment that's really hard to let go of until we see clearly. Then there's the third noble truth. If grasping and holding on and being attached creates suffering, letting go is where freedom is. Liberation through non-clinging is the phrase that's sometimes used. Just by letting go of attachment to those things that we get hooked on, that's where the freedom is. You don't have to make anything else extra out of it. Just let go of your grip. Ajahn Chah who was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher and Jack Cornfield's teacher, had a, a beautiful teaching, a gesture about the power of letting go. And I was, I was uh, fortunate enough to be around him uh, one time when he shared this. This was in, in 1977. Uh, I, went to, I was in Thailand with um, Joseph and Jack and a few others and visited uh, Ajahn Chah and some other masters. It was really amazing. But Ajahn Chah was, the, for me, the, the most inspiring, personally. And, and somebody came to, um, to him. It was actually one of the local uh, Thai people who hadn't done a whole lot of practice. And, um, and he said, uh, 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 Master, Tell me, what is, your, what is the teaching? What is it that you like to teach? What do, you, what do you want to communicate to people anyway? And Ajahn Chah uh, looked around. Okay, we'll just kind of keep on going through. Looked around, and uh, he picked up his cup. He's a very uh, simple uh, um, teachings where it wasn't these lofty lists. He just looked around and, and used whatever was available. And he looked, he said, you see this cup? It was given to me with a lot of love, with a lot of gratitude. It holds my water. It's nice. It's nice to look at. I like it. He said... If I can see this cup as already broken, then I can use it and enjoy it and appreciate it and not cry when it's gone. This is the essence of what I tried to teach. It's good. If we can let go of our grip and thinking, oh, it's got to be this way and just then use whatever is here and appreciate all the, all the wonders and all the, 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 the blessings in our life, then we're not holding on. Letting go doesn't mean dropping like a hot potato. Oh no, I can't get attached. I better let go. We're kind of like, oh, it's stuck and I got to scrape off the goo. Letting go does, just doesn't mean, uh, just means not grasping on tightly, but rather 
allowing, letting it be. There's a simplicity, really, in renunciation. That's simply not complicating our lives with the contraction of holding on. And in that release, there's an ease and a freedom. Allowing. Hmm. Okay. Just remembering. Here's a beautiful poem on uh, allowing by Dana Falds, who I've read from before. It's called Allow. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild with the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice, simply become, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In your choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Just allowing and releasing when you're picking up too much. In our daily life, we know how good it feels when we finally clean out our closet, how spacious it feels. I mentioned this last time. We crave space. We crave simplicity. On a retreat, we find that if we can just not get caught in the next thing that grasps and practice restraint. This is a component of letting go that's really powerful. For instance, as you're walking, it was mentioned here before, and you're walking and you're, somebody's walking by and there's this urge, I've got to look and see who it is. And you get attached to that idea. If I don't look, I'm going to die. <laughs> and so there you are, you know, friend or foe. You know, oh, uh, potential partner or adversary. Vipassana romance or Vipassana vendetta. You know? And there we are being pulled. Have you noticed that as you're walking? You know? Just want to check things out. On my first retreat, almost, you know, it's embarrassed to say this, but by the end of the retreat, in complete silence, I knew everybody's name on the retreat. (laughs) There were the interview sheets, you know. Oh, that's Bob. (laughs) It was painful, you know. Well, it just it kept me occupied. I don't know how, how deep I got. You know. It's so much easier when you just, as Sally was saying, guard the sense doors. You just don't complicate things. So you might notice that's one aspect of this letting go, some restraint as far as seeing what it's like. See if it does kill you not to look at that person. Okay? And what happens... Just take a a time, a walking period where you'll just experiment with this. They come and they go. It's like, you know, Ulysses uh, in the sirens, you know. Oh, I got it. And then they go and it's like, gone. 
15 minutes later, you're probably not going to be dwelling on who was that person that walked by. There'll have been a few others in between. They'll come and go. So, restraint. Notice when you're looking for something. So, and we also want to, uh, we get hooked in looking outside of ourselves, in filling up our lives. In our daily life, there's busyness. You know, oh, I'm a very busy person, which means, oh, I'm a very important person somewhere in there. I'm so busy. You know, That's the refrain. That's the modern disease, not just because we're trying to be important, but because we're on the treadmill and don't even realize that there's an alternative to get off. But also... There's a, in that momentum, we can be afraid of the emptiness, afraid of not much happening. And in retreat, that can make itself known as well, very easily. I think before we go on, and now it's starting to get a little stuffy, just uh, open up some windows right near you, and there's some windows over there, a little ventilation. Thanks. Have you noticed when things are starting to get quiet and you're just settling down, but then it's like not much happening? Well, what then? What if it really gets quiet? And we start looking for things or busying our minds in some way. Particularly if it gets a lack of stimulation and starts to feel, oh, not much is happening. This is really, what? Boring, right? Anybody ever be dealing with boredom here? It's probably one of the hardest things to deal with. I went to a a lecture uh, many years ago. This was with Trungpa Rinpoche. I tell this in my joy class. And uh, he came in and he said, tonight, came in a little bit late, as he always did, like an hour or so late. (laughs) But he came in with a really good opening line. He said, tonight, I'm going to talk about the breakthrough in practice. Everybody was on the edge of their seat. Yeah. And then he proceeded to meander on in the most uninspired way for the next two hours. People were starting to get fidgety and restless. And well, I thought we were going to do the breakthrough. You know, what's going on? <laughs> and then right in the, the middle of this, he stopped mid-sentence and he leaned forward and he said, the real breakthrough is boredom. <laughs> it was... A great teaching. You have to be really a master to pull that off. Two hours of boring people. Uh, Just for the punchline. But it was really potent. Because, and then he went on to explain, if we're looking for entertainment, oh, the next thing is going to do it for us. Oh, yeah, that'll be so cool. That'll be so groovy. And we're afraid to be here when things start getting not fun, 
then we're continually pulled out of ourselves. And we're going to miss the very thing that we're so yearning for because the flip side of boredom is peace. Ah, not much happening. I don't have to do anything. It's so still. It's so completely serene. Nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Ah, this is peace. Anybody here want any peace? But we miss it if we equate lack of stimulation with boredom. So starting to learn to feel comfortable when there's stillness and relax into it and rest in it. This is really the breakthrough, as he said. Sometimes we can, in our wanting to have important experiences, get into making something happen, and we work hard. This is hard work. It really is, and I honor everybody's diligence and sincerity of effort. It takes effort to come here into the moment, and for people who've just come, the 25 or so have come on the retreat, it, it's those first few days, as uh, Trump used to, used to call it, feel like manual labor, just kind of, okay, come on back, come on back. And it takes a lot of effort to come here. But once you're here in the present moment, once you're fully here, complete, there's no effort. And any kind of effort to do or to make it a better moment takes you out of the completeness of simply being. So they're both true. It takes effort to arrive here, but once you're here, it's a deep relaxation, letting go of any effort and simply being. And then you move from doing, from being the doer, that's a good meditator, to simply the joy of being. This is from uh, Tibetan Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Don't get caught into doing the meditation Just you show up as best you can and let yourself be when you're here in the present moment. Let go of any extra doing. Letting go of our ideas of practice and attachment to the goal, if we have a goal, that's another way we get caught. You can have an inspiring vision of what happens or what should happen and let it really move you, throw you into the present moment, or it can be a source of real frustration if it's not happening on your timetable. If you have a pass-fail test for practice, you'll likely fail because life doesn't usually work on our timetable. If you have an idea of progress, you're going to set yourself up. It's not about being here and getting there. Wherever you are when you become awakened, when you are free, I can guarantee you, 
it will be here and it will be now. So it's not about getting someplace else. It's about more and more opening up into the here and now. Notice any kind of ideas you have about practice and see if it's possible to just let go and see that might not be so. That might not be true. Again, Trungpa, he's here tonight a lot. He had this great line. He said, if there's a conflict between you and the Dharma, chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma. (laughs) We create all kinds of ideas and then get frustrated by them. Whereas if there's any kind of a problem, just allow, put down the story of what you think is going to happen. Put down the ideas or the stories or the figuring out. The Third Zen Patriarch has this line, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Just put it down. Let it go. It's such a relief. What we're really learning to let go of is control which is a very challenging thing to do. Because we get caught in thinking, if we can just control life, then we'll be safe and secure. Alan Watts has that great book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. That's where it's at. Because in a world of change, there's no way you can get security. But letting go of... Control is scary. And often, fear comes up in practice. It's got to. If you're really willing to let go of the known and open up to the unknown, there's going to be some fear. This isn't the problem. Fear is actually an ally. Fear, anytime you're moving from the known to the unknown into new territory, It's like fear is the scout. Jack has a great way of saying it. Fear is just really saying, about to grow. So rather than thinking, oh my goodness, I'm afraid now, you're just moving out of your comfort zone into new territory. And when it becomes an ally, then you don't have to fight with it. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's just, oh, I'm growing here. Ah, okay. I can let go of thinking that I've got, I never had control in the first place. You're letting go of control that you never had in the first place. And it's okay. It's okay to be lost. It's okay to be confused. Rather than thinking you're trying to get to any particular destination, you are learning to be here for the ride. And sometimes it's a very sweet ride where there's clarity and love and compassion and calm. And sometimes it gets bumpy and there's sadness and there's fear and there's confusion and there's anger and there's whatever. And they're all part of the package. You're not trying to get to any one place. You're simply learning to be here for the ride. Because the more you can be here for the ride here, the more you can be here for the ride of life. It's not like it's going to get better and better and better and better and better. 
and clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. Although as you practice, there's a kind of slope of more and more understanding and the ability to be with experience. If you're practicing and you get the, the, the power of being with experience, then there's nothing that you need to fear. And that's where fearlessness comes in. Just not that there's no fear, but just that you don't have to be afraid of fear. And there can be a willingness to be with this too. Oh, fear is like this. Oh, paranoia is like this. Oh, confusion is like this. Oh, love is like this. And that's when the letting go becomes the development of faith and of trust, as Sally spoke of um, the other night. Because knowing that things will change, then you can notice that you don't have to figure it all out. You can simply trust that awareness will meet the moment when it comes. It always has. Your whole life, no matter how dicey it's gotten, here you are. Everything has led you up to this moment. And the more and more you can trust that awareness will meet the moment, then there's a kind of ease. And I liken it to learning how to swim. I mentioned this to somebody in the interview the other day. Remember when you first learned how to swim? Have you ever taught a kid to swim? You put them in the water, and what do you do? What do they do when you haven't done this before? You're flailing about, whoa, and somebody is saying, it's okay, just relax. And you're saying, relax, what do you mean? I'm going down here. And then after a while, you start to learn, oh, if I just relax a little bit, oh, this is what treading water is like, oh, this is much better. All right. And then when you really understand and you relax completely and you let go, you float. And the water is here to hold you up just because you're not fighting. And it's the same principle in life. When you stop flailing about or thinking that you've got control over things, and you just relax a little bit and don't fight with life, more and more you see that you have all the resources needed to meet life, and then you can trust more and more and more and let yourself be supported by life. And this is a process that we go through on our own that nobody can teach us, but then we see that we have the capacity to do that. We have everything that we need. And as we do, every single moment of mindfulness counts. Every single moment that you are simply here without grasping at the pleasant experience, without pushing away, which is another kind of attachment with the unpleasant experience, but just opening to experience as it is, we're learning This third noble truth, letting go, that's where freedom is. 
And I'll just close with uh, another Dana Falls poem that I did want to read called Let It Go. She says, Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your, save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 19, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma.